And this morning we're looking at Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 17 through verse 21. Philippians 3, beginning at verse 17. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks for the truth of your word. We thank you that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this passage, we ask that your spirit would lead us and guide us in in your truth. And that the word which you would have for us here uh, would be uh, an encouragement and a challenge uh, and helping us to be further equipped to be faithful witnesses for your glory. And so we pray now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, one of the key themes of Paul's letter to the Philippians that we've been seeing is that he calls believers in Christ to live their lives as citizens of the gospel. That is, uh, as those whose primary focus isn't on uh, thinking about their citizenship in any state or, or nation of this earth, of this world, but who hold their citizenship in the eternal kingdom of God because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for them. And truly, we eagerly await the day when uh, the fullness of this kingdom will be ushered in at the end of the age when Jesus returns in power and glory. But until then, we're called to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of our calling in Christ, seeking after holiness, goodness, and truth as we continually conform our lives to the Word of God and that perfect image of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we know, doing so can be a great challenge. How do we know uh, what it is to seek after holiness, goodness, and truth? What does that actually look like in our everyday lives? Well, our God, who abounds in grace and mercy, He truly knows our concerns and our needs, which is why He's been pleased to give us numerous examples in which we can follow giving us a pattern to, uh, to imitate as to how we're to live as faithful citizens of the gospel and the kingdom of God. But a further challenge is knowing which are good examples to imitate and which aren't, and discerning the difference. Well, as Paul instructs the Philippians about these things, he sets before them the importance of finding the right 
examples of gospel citizenship in which we are to follow and imitate. And so this is where Paul begins in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. And so Paul is calling the Philippian believers, and he's calling us to unite together and follow not only his example, but also the example of other faithful ones who walk according to the right pattern that has been shown and revealed in the gospel. And this is similar to what Paul had charged earlier when he said back in chapter 1, verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the the phrase there, let your conduct, is basically how to live as a citizen. That is, you're to live in such a way that reflects your citizenship in the gospel and in Christ. And Paul addresses this again here because there are many different examples that one could follow, as we'll see. There are some good examples, and certainly there are some that are not so good. Previously, Paul uh, set before us in chapter 2 the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, who were uh, faithful servants and certainly worthy of imitation. In the first part of chapter 3, he even gave uh, his own example of how he counted all things as loss for the sake of Christ and following Christ. And how he presses on and challenges us to press on with all diligence for the prize that yet awaits. And certainly as implied here in verse 17, there are many others who live their lives as good citizens of the gospel and are thus worthy of imitation. But again, how do we know Who's a good example and who's not? Certainly some have, have sought to imitate others only to discover later that they were bad examples. And Paul challenges us here to note those, take note of those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. And so there's a pattern, there's a standard uh, to look for and follow. Now, for many of the Philippians, it's some in the congregation, or it may be the Apostle Paul himself. But what pattern are they following? Well, they're following the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ, as revealed in the Gospel. Christ isn't just the author and finisher of our faith, having secured our salvation by His once-for-all sacrifice for us on the cross. But He's actually also the standard of godliness, which we're called to imitate in our own lives. Paul is saying, imitate others and imitate me, but only insofar as we are imitating Jesus. Because Jesus is that ultimate standard. Well, in chapter 2, Paul demonstrated that this perfect standard of the Lord Jesus Christ by charging that we should have in us the same mind and the same attitude that was in Jesus. It was an attitude of of humble obedience to God's will, submitting ourselves to, uh, to God's will, of selflessly looking out for the interests of others before seeking your own interests. And of course, the self-sacrificial service that we're to offer up to the glory of God. That was the example that Jesus set for us. It's the example that Paul follows. 
Timothy and Epaphroditus then follow Paul's example of Christ-likeness. And Paul now calls the Philippian believers to follow these and other examples in their own midst. Those who truly strive for this Christ-likeness. Well, friends, who are those Christ-like examples in our midst? Who are the ones that you seek to imitate as they seek to follow this same pattern and standard of Christ-likeness? Look around. If there are those who are sincerely striving for that standard, well, then they are worthy of imitation. Seek them out, whoever they are, and follow them as they follow Christ. But there's a challenge as well. Not only is it important to seek out and follow godly, Christ-like citizens of the gospel, but friends, each of you, each of you are called to be such an exemplary citizen yourself. And so as you look around for godly examples to imitate, will also take time to examine your own hearts and your lives to see if you're setting an example. Are you setting an example for others that is worthy of imitation? Are you giving others an example of Christ-likeness and godliness, of humility and, and sacrificial service and self-love or selfless love? This can certainly, though, I'm sure, be a frightening thought. Right? Me? Me, an example to others? But friends, that's what you're called to be. You're called to be an example. And this is critical because every generation needs such examples. This is what Paul is seeking to continue here. He, he wants the Philippian believers to all be exemplary citizens of the gospel so that future generations would then imitate their godliness just as they're imitating Timothy and Epaphroditus, as Timothy and Epaphroditus are imitating Paul, and Paul is imitating Christ. It's like a great chain reaction that's been set off and can now continued even for centuries. Sometimes these exemplary citizens may be hard to find, but they're always there. Those who remain faithful and true to the gospel in every age, striving after Christ's likeness. We think of uh, people back in history like John Huss and John Wycliffe who, who lived before the time of the Reformation. And yet they, uh, before the Reformation started, and later, you know, they, they were faithful in serving God in various ways, even to the point of death. Well, later they became examples to the likes of Martin Luther and John Calvin. And then each of those men in turn became examples to others. And then the pattern continued so that here we are in the 21st century gathered together as believers in the gospel that has been preserved through that faithfulness and that those godly examples left before us. And so it's critical that you not only have such examples in your lives to imitate, but also that you would be such examples for others. So that in your lives and through your lives, God might truly be exalted and the glory of His gospel might be made known. May you each be challenged to be that godly example of Christ-likeness to someone else. 
But there's a great danger, as we noted before. <clears throat> Not everyone is a good example to follow. In fact, not everyone who claims to be a citizen in the community of believers is worthy of imitation. Just because someone says they're a Christian doesn't mean that we should imitate their lifestyle. If they're not seeking to conform themselves to that perfect standard of Christ and the gospel, then you ought not to be following and imitating them. And this is the warning that Paul now gives as he draws a line of distinction between those who are citizens of this world, even though they may claim to be citizens of, the, of Christ, but those who are citizens of the world and those who are true citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And so consider carefully what separates them so that you know which examples are the right examples to follow. First, Paul defines those who are citizens of the world in verses 18 and 19, saying, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. There's such great danger here. Paul has already warned the Philippines about such bad examples before. And he's doing so again. But does he have some particular people in mind here? Well, it's possible that he could be referring to the self-promoting preachers who were stirring up trouble for him in Rome. Those who, uh, he said uh, back in chapter 1, who preach out of envy and strife and self-ambition as they try to discredit Paul while he's in prison. It's also possible that such ones might also eventually make their way to Philippi, and so Paul is is warning them. But it seems more likely that Paul is here speaking of the Judaizers, of whom he warned earlier in chapter 3, saying that they were dogs, and evil workers, and mutilation. Remember, the Judaizers were those who put their confidence in the ceremonial rules and regulations and in their own self-righteous deeds. They were dangerous. So dangerous that Paul once again uses strong language to, to identify them as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's their position before God. It's not a very good position, is it? They're enemies because they reject the sufficiency of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You see, by continuing to observe the ceremonies and the rituals of the Old Testament, they're basically saying that the cross of Christ is not enough. That it's insufficient and powerless to overcome and atone for our sins and our transgressions. We need something more. They assert that the works of the law are still needed. Friends, this is very dangerous as we've considered before. And there's unfortunately many, even in the church today, who fall prey to trusting in their works, or in their own obedience and faithfulness, or they rest in following a variety of rules, regulations, and religious rituals for their righteousness, rather than trusting fully in the person and the work, the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. 
they may carry the label Christian, but they're actually enemies of the cross. Because they add to and they take away from the all-sufficiency of Christ's perfect sacrifice. The reality then becomes that if they're enemies of the cross of Christ, well then they're without hope and without God in this world. And that's never a good place to be. But note secondly that Paul, again, highlighting the extreme danger of this group, he doesn't pull any punches as he really gets, gets right to the heart of the matter that these are enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, then their end is most certainly destruction. This too is a very stern warning. But it's also a very real and vital truth for Christians to know and be aware of. Paul's talking about destruction, eternal destruction in the flames of hell brought on by the righteous wrath and curse of God for their sins. That's what lies in store for them. And this would be true for them if they simply just kept to this uh, error on their own. Well, how much more so if they are now actively and intentionally seeking to lead others astray by their evil example. And so they're headed for destruction. Now we must note here that Paul, though he's using this harsh language, he's not doing so with envy, spite, or hatred. Not at all. But he weeps. Even as he's writing this letter, he was weeping. He was weeping at their lost condition. Weeping at the fact that though they were exposed to the truth, that they've rejected it and have exchanged it for a lie. Weeping because they're headed uh, to a sure and certain doom. Weeping because he knows full well the potential damage and destruction these enemies of the cross could bring and perhaps may have already brought to the peace and unity of the church. This then is a stern warning to be wary of of such ones. You should warn them and others of their end and, and you should do so with tears, weeping as you plead for them to repent of their sin, to turn away from, from destruction and seek the mercy and grace of God for forgiveness of the errors of their ways. Even as Jesus wept over Jerusalem in Luke 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills your children, and the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Friends, we ought to weep for those who reject the gospel, and who trust in their own righteousness, and who seek to lead others astray, because we know that destruction is what awaits them. Well, having stated their position before God and, and warned of their ultimate doom, Paul goes back and further elaborates on why it is that these ones are such poor examples to Im- imitate. And he says that their God is their, be- is their belly. Their God is not the one true living God, But their God is their own selfish appetites, their desires, their drives, and their impulses. 
And the, the image here is, is a belly as a god is never satisfied or, or appeased. Right? Yes, you can eat and you can satisfy your hunger, but that only lasts for a short time. What happens the next day or even a few hours later? The belly cries out for more and more. It's never satisfied. And this is truly an apt picture of those who would seek to place their confidence or trust in anyone or anything other than in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. There's no satisfaction. There's no appeasement. There's no true atonement for sin. They can never be fully assured in their faith because there's always a greater and greater demand for something more. More obedience, more rules, more regulations, more ritual, more works, more faithfulness. But it's never enough. Because these things don't bring satisfaction and atonement for us. And because so, they ultimately enslave the person and consume them with despair and, of course, no assurance of faith at all. And so these are not examples to follow. Paul continues his description of the citizens of the world by saying that their glory is in their shame. That is, they weren't shy or bashful about their sin and their distortion of the truth. They reveled in it. They openly declared what was shameful. They publicly promoted evil and they had no qualms about encouraging others to accept and embrace their sin. Brothers and sisters, doesn't this describe what we see in the world all around us? And sadly, even from quarters of what calls itself the church. Calls to embrace sin and celebrate it. The prophet Isaiah warned in Isaiah 5 verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Those who are enemies of the cross, because they've rejected the only way to salvation, have nothing else to glory in but their own shame and sinfulness. They blatantly disregard God and His law. They they just wallow in the mud of corruption and sin. And they glory in it. Now the temptation here for, for the true believer is at least on the surface, when they look at these in the world, it appears as though on the outside that they're having a lot of fun. Right? They're enjoying themselves with seemingly very little care in the world. They're living life to the fullest. And they're doing that because they're just seeking their own pleasure in all things. But friends, again, be wary. This is a trap. Because the so-called glory of their shame and sin isn't going to last. It's only temporary. And when the end eventually does come, and it will come, their glory will lead to eternal shame and destruction. And so you must be on guard against such ungodly examples of citizenship. Finally, Paul mentions here their focus. They set their minds on earthly things. 
The focus of their thoughts and minds is only on how they can advance and get ahead of everyone else and how they can accumulate more than everyone else. Living for the pleasure of the moment, pursuing health, wealth, fame, and fortune. Diligently seeking to to build a, a sort of empire or a monument to themselves and to their own efforts, all for everyone else to, to look at and to admire and to be jealous of. It's their driving force is to accumulate more and more of these earthly things. They're earthly focused because they're only mindful of the temporal rather than the spiritual and the eternal. And this is why we say they're citizens of the world. Because all they have, all they live and dream about, their faith, their hope, and their trust is only in what this world provides. Temporary pleasures, passing comfort, fickle emotions, unpredictable relationships, and treasures that are exposed to moth and rust and which quickly fade away like grass in the hot desert sun. And when Christ returns on the last great day to judge the living and the dead, they will have no advocate. They will have no protector. They will have no friends. And they will certainly have no hope. So Paul warns sternly against following their example. But there's something that you should remember at this point. Friends, this is, this is where we all began. Right? This is where each of us stands before and without Christ in our lives. We're citizens of the world. Our focus is merely upon earthly matters. We, we gloried in our shame and sin because we were blind to the truth. We were enslaved to our own sinful appetites as they, uh, as they just consumed us. We were enemies of the cross of Christ. We were rejectors of God and the gospel. And our ultimate end was surely eternal destruction in hell. But by God's grace... God's grace alone, we've been redeemed. We've been made to see. We've been washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We've been made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've been given a new eternal hope that is now set before us. We are now in Christ, beloved children of God, and citizens of heaven, as Paul declares here in verse 20. Now it's true, we're still in this world. Right? But as Jesus prayed in John 17, He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see, we're in the world, but we're not of it. Because the world in us, the remnant of the sin nature has been overcome by the real presence of the Holy Spirit of Christ dwelling in us. In Christ, we've truly become new creatures, and and being new creatures, we've become aliens in this world as our citizenship is now in God's heavenly kingdom. And this was a great privileged position of which the Philippians were well aware. Remember, Philippi was actually originally a Greek city, 
But because it was also a Roman colony, its citizens were given Roman citizenship. And so that they lived in Greece, they belonged to Rome. And this is exactly the point that Paul is making about their spiritual citizenship. They're still living on the earth and in the world, and certainly they have much to do and accomplish in it for God's glory, but their citizenship, our citizenship, is in God's eternal heavenly kingdom. It's where we belong. It's our true home. And one day, Christ will return to bring us to that home. And as Paul described those who were citizens of the world, he now goes on to describe this heavenly citizenship and those who possess it. For the enemies of the cross of Christ, their end was destruction, even eternal destruction in the flames of hell. But as implied here, the ultimate end for the believer in Christ is is eternal life in His heavenly kingdom. No death, no destruction, only the joy of everlasting life in His holy presence. Secondly, instead of, instead of their belly being their God, the believer's trust is in the one true living God, even the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's the glorious return of this living Savior that we now eagerly await, and He'll come down in power and glory from heaven to gather His people to Himself. But until He comes, we're called to serve Him in our lives. And we serve Him by obeying His commands, by loving Him, loving one another, and seeking to reach the lost with the Gospel. This is what we do. Not to earn His favor or secure our salvation, but to show our faith and our gratitude to the One who gave Himself for us. Those who are truly godly look to Christ alone for salvation, not to their own works or deeds our faithfulness. And thirdly, they, uh, the glory we seek isn't shame, in shameful things that will pass away, but it's in that eternal glory of Christ Himself and the transformation of our bodies at the resurrection. Paul says here, verse 21, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body. In other words, we'll be glorified because we'll be a perfect reflection of Christ's glory. And the glory of God the Son doesn't fade away and it does not wear off. It's this hope for future glory that that leads us even now to seek to conform our lives to His perfect example as citizens of His kingdom. Finally then, our focus isn't to be on the things of the earth, but our focus is to be on our heavenly citizenship and all the blessings and benefits that await us as we seek to glorify God. Now, this doesn't mean that we're to be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. It doesn't mean that we can disregard this life or that we keep ourselves from interacting with the world as some Christians are are apt to do. Not at all. Though our citizenship is in heaven... We're still in this world. There are still duties and obligations that we must fulfill. And certainly to neglect those duties and obligations would dishonor God. It would dishonor Him because He's called us to be godly examples to others. 
So that by our witness and by our words, that the gospel light might shine on others, even drawing others into the heavenly citizenship with us because of that witness and because of that example. And so this is how we demonstrate exemplary citizenship. By seeking to glorify God in all that He's given us to do here in this life. Living in holiness and obedience to His Word. Striving after Christ-likeness. Loving, serving, and ministering to those in need in the name of Christ. Again, we're to live as such exemplary citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. Not to earn salvation with our own merits. But we're to live such godly lives to demonstrate our love and our gratitude to God for all that He has graciously done for us through Jesus Christ. And let's then be challenged to be such exemplary citizens as we fix our eyes and our hope heavenward, looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, doing all that we do until that time to the praise and glory of God alone. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks for this, uh, this great reminder that we live here, but this is not our home. Our home is with You and in Your glorious kingdom that we eagerly await. And yet You have called us to be here and You have given us work to do we pray that you would help us to faithfully do that and that as we do so that we would seek to be conforming always our lives to your perfect standard that we'd be looking for examples of those that we can imitate even as we ourselves would be good godly examples for others to imitate and that even by the example that we set as citizens of your kingdom living in this world, not only would, be a, would we be an encouragement to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but that we would be true beacons of light and hope in this dark world. And that others might see that witness of how we live our lives and be drawn to you, even asking us to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And we pray that at such time, your spirit would give us the words to speak as we declare the gospel of truth to them. And we pray for your blessing upon that, and that you would give us those opportunities. Even this week, we pray, Lord, bless us in this way, that we would be faithful in serving you and glorifying you above all things. Father, we just pray that you would impress these truths upon each of our hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.